This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to adult spinal deformity. So let's get right into it. The first question reads, which factor has been associated with worse patient-reported outcomes for those undergoing surgical correction of adult spinal deformity? And the choices are 1. Advanced age, 2. Ethnicity, 3. Obesity, 4. Preoperative Oswestry Disability Index Scores, and 5. Preoperative Sagittal Vertical Axis Greater Than Plus 5 Centimeters. The correct answer to this question is 3. Obesity. So complications and worse patient outcomes in adult spinal deformity corrective surgery have been associated with obesity. To quickly review, adult spinal deformity is the result of either residual adolescent idiopathic scoliosis or degenerative scoliosis leading to coronal and sagittal imbalance, with back pain being the most common complaint. Sagittal imbalance is associated with poor patient functioning and quality of life pre- and post-operatively. The goals of surgical treatment are to restore sagittal vertical axis to within 5 centimeters of the posterior superior point of the S1 vertebral body and increasing lumbar lordosis to within 9 degrees of pelvic incidence. Surgical correction has been associated with many complications, with 4 or more medical comorbidities, insufficient sagittal correction, pseudoarthrosis, and obesity as predictors of unsatisfactory surgical results. Smith et al. performed a retrospective review of 206 patients from the Adult Deformity Outcomes Multi-Institutional Database for Complications and Outcomes Associated with Operative Treatment Based on Patient Age. They found that increased patient age was associated with the worst preoperative level of function and pain, as well as more perioperative complications. However, at two years follow-up, there was no difference in outcomes compared to younger cohorts, suggesting that advanced age patients have the most to gain from adult spinal deformity corrective surgery. Theologus et al. performed an analysis on a consecutive series of 267 patients through a multi-center adult spinal deformity database to ascertain the effect of preoperative depression on outcomes at two years. A greater degree of depression was found to be associated with greater preoperative pain and deformity. However, at two years post-op, there was no difference in outcomes with regards to pre-op depression when comorbidities were taken into account. Sorosianu et al. performed a retrospective review including 241 patients through a multi-center database examining the effect of obesity on outcomes and complications following adult spinal deformity corrective surgery. Patients that were obese were more likely to experience wound complications and infections than non-obese patients. Furthermore, obese patients had a lower level of improvement at two years on patient-reported outcomes. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements is false regarding the effects of smoking? And the choices are 1. Smoking increases the infection rate following ankle fracture ORIF. 2. Smoking leads to higher rates of implant loosening following total hip arthroplasty. 3. Smoking increases the risk of distal radius fractures. 4. Smoking increases the pseudoarthrosis rate following spinal fusion. And 5. The impact of smoking on surgical outcomes does not change with preoperative smoking cessation programs. The correct answer to this question is 5. The impact of smoking on surgical outcomes does not change with preoperative smoking cessation programs. So all of the options listed are true statements except answer 5, which is a false statement. Improved surgical outcomes are seen following preoperative smoking cessation programs. 
To quickly review, smoking is the leading avoidable cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States annually, leading to an estimated 500,000 deaths per year. Smoking has detrimental effects on a variety of musculoskeletal conditions and surgical outcomes. Smoking increases platelet aggregation, which leads to thrombi and impaired soft tissue perfusion. Smoking negatively affects arthroplasty outcomes with higher rates of soft tissue infection, hardware loosening, and deep infection. Smoking inhibits estrogen production, which impairs overall bone health and is implicated in osteoporosis, increased fracture risk, and decreased bone healing. Smoking has been shown to have detrimental effects on outcomes following spine surgery with higher rates of postoperative wound infection, continued pain, and lower fusion rates. Smoking cessation programs have demonstrated success in improved orthopedic outcomes and represent a unique opportunity for orthopedic surgeons to have a substantial impact on future smoking-related chronic diseases. Porter et al. reviewed the relationship between smoking and musculoskeletal diseases and their treatment. They explored the evidence surrounding the detrimental effects of smoking on osteoporosis, low back pain, degenerative disc disease, wound healing, and fracture healing. They also state multiple studies have shown one of the effects of smoking is increased platelet aggregation, likely mediated through nicotine. Reisman et al. reviewed pseudoarthrosis of the spine and discussed smoking as a risk factor. They state smoking has been shown to lead to lower fusion rates clinically, as well as in multiple animal studies. Argentar et al. reviewed the relationship between perioperative smoking and the musculoskeletal system. Although our knowledge about smoking as it relates to bone and soft tissue healing continues to evolve, they conclude that smoking cessation programs help decrease perioperative complications and is a way orthopedic surgeons can intervene with smokers to reduce chronic disease. Moving on to the next question. A 17-year-old female is undergoing posterior instrumented fusion from T5 to T12 for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. At the time of the correction maneuver, the neurophysiologist notifies you of a 60% decrease in somatosensory evoked potential, or SSEP, amplitude throughout the bilateral lower extremities. Which of the following is an acceptable approach to manage this finding? And the choices are 1. Immediate wake-up test with examination for clonus. 2. Drop the mean arterial pressure to approximately 60 millimeters of mercury. 3. Discontinue instrumentation and optimize the mean arterial pressure to 85 millimeters of mercury or greater. 4. Immediate infusion of intravenous corticosteroids. And 5. Modification of the anesthesia plan to include inhalational agents only followed by repeated SSEP testing. The correct answer to this question is 3. Discontinue instrumentation and optimize the MAP to 85 millimeters of mercury or greater. So the patient has a significant drop in SSEP amplitudes at the completion of the corrective maneuver. The most appropriate response is to raise the MAP to 85 millimeters of mercury or greater, discontinue the instrumentation, reevaluate the SSEPs, and if there is no improvement, to consider reversing the reduction of the deformity. To quickly review, intraoperative neurophysiologic monitoring is an effective method to monitor insults to the spinal cord and its exiting roots during spinal instrumentation. The common measurements include SSEPs, which monitor sensory potentials transmitted through the dorsal column system, and motor-evoked potentials, or MEPs, which monitor motor response to a transcranial stimulus. Decreases in amplitude and latency of the circuits are recorded, however diminished signal amplitudes are more sensitive for neurologic injury and decreases of greater than 50 to 60% being highly concerning. 
The wake-up test involves reversal of anesthesia so that an intraoperative neurologic examination can be performed. Devlin et al. reviewed the basic science and practice of neurophysiologic monitoring in spine surgery. They proposed an algorithmic approach to managing intraoperative alerts, which include discontinuation of inhalational anesthetics, increasing the MAP to greater than 90 millimeters of mercury, discontinuing instrumentation, and performing a wake-up test if neurologic signals fail to normalize. Herdman et al. reviewed the practice of neurophysiologic monitoring and the effects of anesthesia upon signal transduction. They report that anesthesia affecting a neuron's intrinsic excitability can alter the results of monitoring. Inhalational anesthetics and decreased MAPs can be responsible for decreased amplitudes. Vital et al. developed a consensus-based intraoperative checklist for management of lost neuromonitoring signals. In this checklist, the first steps across the surgical and anesthetic teams should include stopping the case and announcing signal losses to the room, optimizing the mean arterial pressure, discussing the status of anesthetic agents, and discussing reversible surgical actions just prior to signal loss. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements about spinal anatomy is true? And the choices are 1. The ratio of cortical to cancellous bone in the pedicle is higher in the thoracic spine than the sacrum. 2. The pedicle screw trajectory at L3 is angled more lateral than at L1. 3. The diameter of the S1 pedicle is smaller than the L1 pedicle. 4. The S1 nerve roots sit on the sacral ala and is at risk with percutaneous sacral iliac fixation. And 5. The starting point for S1 pedicle is superior and medial to the inferior tip of the inferior articular process of L5. The correct answer to this question is 1. The ratio of cortical to cancellous bone in the pedicle is higher in the thoracic spine than the sacrum. So the ratio of cortical to cancellous bone in the pedicle is higher in the thoracic spine than the sacrum. To quickly review, knowledge of characteristic regional spinal anatomy is essential for safe pedicle screw placement. Fixation is best in cortical bone. The sacrum has the lowest ratio of cortical to cancellous bone in the spine. Weight-bearing potential and availability of bone for hardware fixation is related to the density of that bone. Cortical bone has higher density than cancellous, and therefore higher ratios of cortical to cancellous bone are optimal for weight-bearing and fixation. The pedicles of the thoracic spine have the highest ratio of cortical to cancellous bone. Local bone density must be carefully considered when planning spinal fixation in osteoporotic bone. In the lumbosacral spine, pedicle diameter and medial angulation increase, moving proximal to distal. Ray et al. performed a biomechanical study in which they compared a medialized caudal to cephalad cortical screw trajectory to a more traditional pedicle screw trajectory. They found that the cortical trajectory engaged higher quality and denser bone than a traditional pedicle screw trajectory. Moving on to the next question, what is the incidence of major complications following adult spinal deformity surgery? And the choices are 1, less than 1%, 2, 2-4%, to 3, 5-8%, to 4, 10 to 20 percent, and 5 greater than 20 percent. The correct answer to this question is 4, 10 to 20 percent. So studies have shown major complications occur in 10 percent of patients that undergo adult spinal deformity surgery. Many of these major complications, such as neurologic deficits, cardiac events, and thromboembolic events, are irreversible and adversely affect the long-term health of the patient. Patients undergoing adult spinal deformity surgery should have a thorough understanding of the risks prior to proceeding with surgery. 
Glassman et al. looked at patients undergoing adult spinal deformity surgery and found 47 major complications were reported in 46 patients. 62 minor complications were noted in the 46 patients. They found major complications adversely affect the SF12 general health scores at one year after surgery. The most common major complication found at follow-up was instrumentation failure. Piasecki et al. looked at the rate of thromboembolic disease in 66 consecutive adult patients who underwent extensive anterior-slash-posterior spinal reconstructions for spinal deformity. They found the total incidence of postoperative thromboembolic disease was 13.6%. The overall rate of DVT was 9.1%, one-third occurring in the pelvis. Pulmonary embolus developed in 7.6%. Right-sided thoracolumbar approaches were associated with an increased risk of developing DVT, pulmonary embolism, and thromboembolic disease. Sanser et al. queried the Scoliosis Research Society morbidity and mortality database from 2004 to 2007. Complications were identified and analyzed on the basis of patient characteristics and surgical techniques. They found the overall complication rate for adult spinal deformity treatment is 13.4% and that the complication rate is significantly higher when osteotomies, revision procedures, and combined anterior-slash-posterior approaches are used. Complication rate was not influenced by scoliosis type or age. Moving on to the next question. Pedicle subtraction osteotomies are commonly performed in the lumbar spine to treat sagittal imbalance. What is the most common complication following a pedicle subtraction osteotomy in the lumbar spine? And the choices are 1. Pseudoarthrosis, 2. Nerve root injury, 3. Spinal cord injury, 4. Aortic injury, and 5. Dural tear. The correct answer to this question is 1. Pseudoarthrosis. So the rate of pseudoarthrosis at 5-year follow-up is 29%, with most occurring at the thoracolumbar junction cephalad to the site of the pedicle subtraction osteotomy. The rate of postoperative neurologic deficits is 11%, with 2.8% resulting in permanent deficits. Spinal cord injury is rare because the pedicle subtraction osteotomy is typically performed in the lumbar spine below the conus. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following radiographic parameters is most predictive of a poor result following multi-level fusion surgery for adult degenerative scoliosis? And the choices are 1, an L5-S1 degenerative disc left out of the fusion, 2, coronal imbalance, 3, residual scoliosis of greater than 25 degrees, 4, residual foraminal stenosis, and 5, sagittal imbalance. The correct answer to this question is 5, sagittal imbalance. So sagittal imbalance appears to be the greatest predictor of a poor surgical outcome in multilevel fusions for adult scoliosis. Coronal imbalance is better tolerated as long as it is not excessive. The amount of residual scoliosis does not seem to play a role as long as overall balance is achieved. The issue of including the L5-S1 level in long fusions remains debatable, and some residual foraminal stenosis can be tolerated, particularly when included within the stabilized-slash-fused segments. Moving on to the next question. In patients with adult scoliosis requiring long thoracolumbar fusions, which of the following is the major advantage of extending the fusion to the sacrum as opposed to ending at L5? And the choices are 1. Improved function outcomes. 2. Decreased pseudoarthrosis rates. 3. Decreased major medical complications. 4. Improved correction and maintenance of sagittal balance. And 5. Improved curve correction in the coronal plane. 
The correct answer to this question is for improved correction and maintenance of sagittal balance. So in adult patients with spinal deformity, extension of a long fusion to the sacrum is associated with improved correction and maintenance of sagittal balance. Edwards et al. did a retrospective cohort study looking at patients with fusion to L5 versus those fused to the sacrum. Patients fused to the sacrum showed improved correction and maintenance of their sagittal balance. However, patients fused to the sacrum also had an increased rate of pseudoarthrosis and major medical complications. There was no difference in functional outcomes or degree of coronal correction between the two groups. The study by Coons et al. is an extension of the Edwards study with longer-term follow-up. They found that advanced degeneration at L5-S1 occurred in 69% of deformity patients after long fusions to L5 with 5-20 to year follow-up. The development of advanced degeneration at L5-S1 was highly correlated with the development of positive sagittal balance. Moving on to the next question. A 45-year-old woman has idiopathic scoliosis. Surgery is to include an anterior thoracic release through an open left thoracotomy. The thoracotomy will have what effect on the patient's pulmonary function postoperatively? And the choices are 1. Unaffected. 2. Transiently reduced postoperatively but ultimately improves to greater than preoperative function. 3. Transiently reduced immediately postoperatively but then quickly returns to preoperative levels. 4. Improves postoperatively due to correction of the scoliosis and is maintained long term. And 5. Reduced postoperatively and often remains reduced long term. The correct answer to this question is 5. Reduced postoperatively and often remains reduced long term. So a thoracotomy in an adult with idiopathic scoliosis causes a reduction in pulmonary function that often does not return to preoperative levels. What pulmonary function does recover, recovers over many months. Long-term improvement in pulmonary function compared to preoperative function is rarely seen. This should be considered in planning surgical intervention in adults with scoliosis. Moving on to the next question. When performing a long fusion to the sacrum in an osteopenic patient in whom optimal sagittal balance is restored, which of the following is a benefit of extending the distal fixation to the pelvis rather than the sacrum alone? And the choices are 1. Decreased risk of sacral fractures. 2. Decreased risk of proximal functional kyphosis. 3. Easier contouring of the instrumentation. 4. Reduced risk of late pubic ramus fractures. And 5. Improved coronal plane correction. The correct answer to this question is 1. Decreased risk of sacral fractures. So in osteopenic individuals, even those with excellent obtained or maintained balance, long instrumented fusions to the sacrum impart a high degree of strain, and the sacrum may fail in a transverse fracture or fracture dislocation pattern. The risk of proximal functional kyphosis is unrelated to distal fixation, as are coronal plane correction and rod contouring. Pubic ramus fractures have been shown to be associated with both fixation to the sacrum alone as well as to the ilium. Moving on to the next question. What is the primary reason for including the ilium in the distal fixation of long instrumentation constructs in adult scoliosis? And the choices are 1. Better coronal balance. 2. Better pelvic balance. 3. Reduced fretting and corrosion. 4. Improved curve correction. And 5. Improved fusion success. The correct answer to this question is 5. Improved fusion success. So studies have shown that when compared with fixation to the sacrum alone, the success rate of fusion across the lumbosacral junction increases when both the sacrum and ilium are included in the posterolateral construct. 
curve correction, coronal balance, and pelvic balance are all attended to within the thoracolumbar spine and are not directly related to the pelvic fixation. Fretting and corrosion are a byproduct of metal-to-metal connections. Moving on to the next question. In adult patients with scoliosis, severity of symptoms correlates with which of the following variables? And the choices are 1. Coronal imbalance, 2. Sagittal imbalance, 3. Magnitude of the coronal cob angle, 4. Number of spine levels involved in the deformity, and 5. Level of the apex of the curve. The correct answer to this question is 2. Sagittal imbalance. So sagittal balance is the most reliable radiographic predictor of clinical health status in adults with spinal deformity. Glassman et al. evaluated 752 patients of which a positive sagittal imbalance was identified in 352 patients. As the C7 plumb line deviation increased, poorer results were found in all measures of health status. In addition, patients in this study with lumbar kyphosis had more overall measured disability compared to controls. Schwab et al., as a method of classifying adult scoliosis, defined criteria based on radiographic markers of disability, which ultimately showed correlation with patient-reported disability and need for operative treatment. Kim et al. analyzed the causes, prevalence, and risk factors for sagittal thoracic decompensation in patients post-lumbar spinal instrumentation and found that postoperative sagittal imbalance, smaller lumbar lordosis, preoperative sagittal imbalance, and age at surgery greater than 55 years were risk factors for thoracic decompensation. Moving on to the next question. A patient who is an observant Jehovah's Witness requires major surgery for scoliosis that will likely result in significant blood loss. Which of the following might the patient consider allowing the surgical team to use? And the choices are 1. Transfusion of whole blood. 2. Transfusion of packed red blood cells. 3. A cell saver with continuity maintained in a closed circuit. 4. Transfusion of plasma. And 5. Transfusion of platelets. The correct answer to this question is 3, a cell saver with continuity maintained in a closed circuit. So Jehovah's Witnesses will not accept a transfusion of blood or blood products such as packed red blood cells or white cells, platelets, or plasma. However, many Jehovah's Witnesses will accept the use of a cell saver in a closed circuit. And moving on to the final question for this review session. A 66-year-old female presents to your clinic complaining of back pain, difficulty standing up straight, weakness in her legs, and neurogenic claudication. On upright thoracolumbar radiographs, there is a 75-degree thoracolumbar curve with the apex at L2, and the C7 plumb line falls 12 centimeters anterior to the posterior superior corner of S1. Aside from a decompression of the stenotic levels, which of the following choices will lead to the most reliable decrease in overall disability? And the choices are 1. Ensuring the lumbar lordosis is within 15 degrees of the pelvic incidence, 2. Decreasing the comb angle to less than 25 degrees. 3. Correcting the sagittal vertical axis to plus 3 centimeters from neutral. 4. Increasing the pelvic tilt to greater than 20 degrees. And 5. Stopping the fusion at L5. The correct answer to this question is 3. Correcting the sagittal vertical axis to plus 3 centimeters from neutral. So this patient has a spinal deformity in both the coronal and sagittal planes. Among the options given, correction of the sagittal vertical axis to plus 3 centimeters is the most reliable predictor of clinical improvement. Spinal malalignment in adult spinal deformity challenges balance mechanisms used for maintenance of an upright posture to achieve the basic human needs of preserving level visual gaze and retaining the head over the pelvis. 
Severe malalignment can result in greater muscular effort and energy expenditure to maintain the erect posture as well as use of compensatory mechanisms. As such, surgical correction of these deformities are aimed at achieving proper spinopelvic alignment. Glassman et al. performed a multi-center retrospective study of 298 adults with spinal deformity. Regardless of operative or non-operative care, a positive sagittal balance was found to be the most reliable predictor of clinical symptoms in both patient groups. Schwab et al. published a current concepts review on operative management for adult spinal deformities and identified three major goals. One, correct the SVA to within 5 centimeters of neutral. Two, ensure the pelvic tilt is less than 20 degrees. And three, ensure the lumbar lordosis is within 9 degrees of the pelvic incidence. That's all for this question review session about adult spinal deformity. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.